Victoria uh, reports on financial activities, uh, FinReg and so forth for Politico, and we're pleased to have her here today uh, to moderate the uh, panel, which will discuss the communications uh, practices and transparency and forward guidance uh, of the Fed. So it follows nicely from uh, Paul Tucker's speech. So uh, want to get started? Thanks, Jim. Um, so it's, uh, it's fitting for me as a journalist to get to cover a panel on uh, Fed communications, something that's near and dear to my heart. Um, as you heard from Vice Chair Clarita this morning, communications is um, one of the key pillars that's under review for Fed policy um, by the FOMC. And uh, we're going to dig in here um, to hear about a paper from Sarah Binder, who is a uh, political science professor at George Washington University and a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, um, as well as from Mark Spindell, who is um, a chief investment officer at um, Potomac River Capital. And um, I'm sure many of you have read their book, The Myth of Independence, which uh, quickly became a defining work on uh, politics and the Fed. And then also with us, we're, we, we have uh, Charles Calamiris, who is um, a professor at Columbia Business School. And um, we also have Andrew Levin, who is an economics professor at Dartmouth and uh, served for many years at the Fed board, including as a special advisor to uh, Fed Chair Yellen. And if you want to hear more about them, you uh, have extensive bios in your programs. So um, with that, I'm going to turn it over to the panel. And um, I think we're going to hear from uh, Sarah about their paper. Thank you. Excellent. Um, one of the uh, many known differences between the Brookings Institution and the Cato Institute seems to be height here. So I assume you can hear me. Uh, I don't know that you can see me, but we're good. We're good. Um, I'm going to start us off and then uh, pass the baton, as it were, or the clicker uh, to Mark. Excellent. Well, thanks very much for the introduction and for uh, including us today. Uh, our paper approaches the Fed's communications challenges as a problem of interdependence. If the Fed were truly an independent central bank, we say and argue it would have relatively free reign to mold and then revamp its communications. Uh, but as we'll discuss, the Fed's challenge is actually its interdependence. The Fed sits uh, as Paul Tucker has reminded us, in the middle of the political system. And as such, it faces both economic as well as political constraints uh, in choosing how and then how much to communicate. And that means that even when there's an economic rationale for the Fed to adjust uh, its communications, an interdependent Fed doesn't necessarily have free reign to remake uh, its tools. So... Our argument first, in a nutshell, the Fed's uh, commitment to communication and thus transparency has both economic and political roots. Uh, the economic rationale for or against transparency is well studied, particularly in this room. And we know that it adapts to the economic environment, uh, high inflation, recessions, rates near the lower bound, and so forth. Uh, but our focus today is particularly on the political roots, which we argue are underappreciated. Why is this important? Interdependence, or political constraints and considerations, complicate, uh, we argue, the Fed's ability to revamp its communications 
and make it especially hard for the Fed to reduce its uh, transparency. And this puts uh, what we call in the paper, puts the Fed into a communications trap. Uh, economically constrained, especially today in setting uh, future expectations, but still politically compelled to be transparent. So just an overview of where we're going. Briefly, uh, the evolution of Fed transparency, uh, touch on the economic roots of communication, but then more deeply into the political roots of Fed communications, as well as the political sources of leverage uh, on the shape of uh, how the Fed communicates. And then finally wrap up looking more carefully at this uh, communications trap. So where did we come from in terms of uh, Fed communications? This is, of course, the classic uh, Alan Greenspan uh, testifying in uh, obscure uh, language uh, before the Congress. And uh, like uh, most New Yorker cartoons, uh, it's funny. <laughs> Uh, it's also basically true. Fed communication, by Greenspan's own admission, was as much about obscuring the forecast as it was about increasing transparency. As uh, Greenspan said many times, uh, if you think you, if you think what I said was clear and understand, unmistakable, I can assure you, you have probably uh, misunderstood me. So Fed watching in those days was basically an economic Rorschach test. Right? Often one heard what one wanted to hear. Uh, so we all know, of course, that the Fed communications have evolved uh, considerably. Uh, and the revolution since Greenspan's strategic ambiguity is probably best uh, captured by Ben Bernanke. Uh, he started a blog after leaving the Fed, unless he was blogging as uh, Professor Skinner <laughs> or Edward Quince for those... <laughs> Remembering that one. Okay. Uh, but he put it this way. When I was at the Fed, I occasionally observed that monetary policy is 98% talk and only 2% action. The ability to shape market expectations of future policy through public statements is one of the most powerful tools that the Fed has. In other words, the explanation, the communication, is the policy. For example, forward guidance tells you what course policy is likely to follow so that markets, individuals, and businesses can make financial decisions accordingly. Of course, a decade past the global financial crisis, central bankers are now particularly struggling with forward guidance. Uh, Chairman Powell, just a uh, press conference just last month, so we made one decision today, and that decision was to lower the federal funds rate by a quarter percentage point. Or vice chair, uh, also last month, uh, looking ahead, monetary policy is not on a preset course. The committee will proceed on a meeting-by-meeting -meeting basis. So in our paper, we explore both these economic roots and political roots of this evolution in Fed communication and transparency. Uh, the economic roots uh, are well known in this room and on this uh, panel in the wake of the global financial crisis. The idea was that investors, businesses, and the public, if they expect rates to be held low into the future, economic decisions can capitalize on that guidance, leading to lower longer-term rates and thus stimulating demand and growth. But the focus on transparency and communication and forward guidance predates the crisis. So uh, Bernanke in 2004, if effective communication can help financial markets develop more accurate expectations of the likely future course of the funds rate, policy, he says, will be more effective and risk in financial markets should be reduced as well. That's the economic case. But why do politicians want the Fed to be more transparent? We explore in the paper uh, two reasons. 
First, that transparency empowers lawmakers to hold the Fed accountable for its performance. How well is it meeting its congressional mandate? But secondly, transparency empowers politicians to blame the Fed when things go wrong. The more Congress knows about the Fed's policy choices, the easier it is to blame them when the economy sours. And of course, ditto for the president. Knowing where the Fed is headed allows the president to attack the Fed, blaming them when or if things go south. In other words, legislative and presidential pressure for greater transparency is rarely motivated by optimal economics. So we spend some time in the paper going into the, essentially the mechanisms here, right? the political pressure points on the Fed that help to shape Fed communications. We note three here. Uh, first, embedded in statute, right? Dodd-Frank, Federal Reserve Act, Humphrey Hawkins, uh, others. Second, in uh, congressional threats to legislate, right? where Congress threatens to legislate, but in fact doesn't ever do it. But as Mark will uh, uh, walk us through, there are ways in which we see that the threats themselves are effective, uh, absent legislation. And then finally, threats uh, and pressures from the president that Mark will also come back to. What do these have in common? Clearly, they create incentives for the Fed. Sometimes they force the Fed to communicate its policy path to Congress, to the public and financial markets. Now, we don't claim that politicians always get what they want. They don't, in part because politicians do not always agree on what it is that they want. Right? But neither does the Fed always get what they want in terms of the degree of transparency or communications that they would prefer. And, and that's what is important here. Uh, Mark's going to walk us through some of the cases. And we'll see that the Fed's choices about how to communicate, as well as how much to communicate, are driven not just by economic theory, but also by these types of critical political constraints. I will swap spots. And I'll just quickly um, add my thanks to Cato and pick up where Sarah left off. Um, we'll introduce some examples of how congressional pressure generates this new mandate uh, for greater transparency. I'm going to take us all back to April 1975. Um, there's a nice exchange in the, in the public domain of letters between then House Banking Chair Wright Patman uh, on your left uh, and Fed Chair Arthur Burns uh, on your right. And that, uh, that look of menacing between them came out in this exchange of letters. Um, Wright Patman, essentially the boss, he wants verbatim transcripts of the FOMC meetings. He sends a letter to, uh, to Fed Chair Burns. Burns offers him only previously released summaries, and he claims, keep a note of this, importantly, he claims that the verbatim notes have been destroyed after each meeting. Uh, these weren't exactly love letters between, uh, between uh, the Fed and, uh, and the Congress. Uh, they go back and forth for three months until Burns, speaking on behalf of the entire FOMC, FOMC says, no way, we're not going to give you the transcripts. Remember, who's the boss here? Uh, Patman and his banking committee successors hold the upper hand. So in 1975, they mandate that the Fed chair appear for testimony and report quarterly monetary targets. In 1976, the Congress greenlights GAO audits of admittedly non-monetary policy decisions. In 1977, 
Congress passes amendments to the Federal Reserve Act with even more mandates for greater transparency. And finally, in 1978, the mother of all transparency initiatives, Congress passes the Humphrey Hawkins Act. And as Sarah and I want to make clear, these are interdependent institutions. Lawmakers' extraordinary power to open and revise the Federal Reserve Act gave Wright-Patman ultimately the upper hand, especially at the tail end of a long recession. Inflation was running at 10%. Unemployment was at its highest level since the Great Depression. Congressional pressure for more transparency continued into the 90s. And the earlier legislation that the 1970s Congress had passed made new legislative threats credible and effective. Sarah's Greenspan cartoon notwithstanding, Greenspan does get credit for the Fed's move towards greater transparency. Starting in 1994, of all of us know, Greenspan and company released and actually improved a post-meeting statement with increasing levels of detail. In 1995, the Fed begins releasing transcripts of past FOMC meetings with a five-year lag. As I told you, remember, Burns wasn't exactly honest when he told Patman decades earlier that the meeting transcripts had been destroyed. It turns out the Oval Office wasn't the only place in Washington that was keeping tapes. Greenspan didn't move the FOMC to take these steps towards more open communication because he thought it would just make better policy. Greenspan and the committee acted because the new chair of the House Banking Committee threatened Greenspan that Congress would enact a law to mandate release of transcripts and video of the FOMC, FOMC meetings with a 60-day lag. What we document here is an ongoing continuous tango between the two institutions, the boss and its direct report. And while it took some time for the Fed to appreciate just how serious Gonzalez and Congress were, the FOMC realized that making small concessions about old transcripts wouldn't suffice. Thus, we say a credible threat to legislate is necessary and sufficient to get the Fed to communicate with greater clarity and transparency about its policy choices. Now, finding evidence that Congress was having its effect is hard. But with these now verbatim access to those meetings, we introduce an example. In the middle of the mid-1990s, those Greenspan-Gonzalez interactions, the Fed reveals how politics and the transparency members demanded constrain the Fed's monetary policy process, especially as it pertains to the price stability mandate. In July 1996, famous exchange, the transcript is well worth your time reading, then San Francisco Fed President Janet Yellen advocates for a 2% target. Jeff Lacker spoke about it early this morning. Begrudgingly, Greenspan concurs. But he doesn't want that number or the debate itself leaving the room. Why was that? He says we would find that our mandate would get remarkably altered. Over a decade later, Fed Chair Ben Bernanke pushes the FOMC to revisit inflation targeting, but only if they can secure congressional consent. In December 2010, the transcripts, the transcripts reveal from Bernanke, quote, one of the main issues has been whether we could succeed politically in creating an inflation target or whether there would be pushback from Congress. I think we are actually at a moment where if we wanted to do something like that, it would actually be welcomed by the political world, end quote. 
Even today, these debates about raising or recalculating inflation raise political concerns. Bit of magic. We're lucky. What more could you do? You said you could raise the inflation target. And I suppose the type of reasoning that led us to 2%, which was partly based on estimates of how often you'd hit the zero lower bound, um, we probably would come out with a higher inflation target now if we were starting from scratch. But um, moving to a higher inflation target is a tricky business. And um, number one, I'm not sure that Congress would regard it as consistent with their mandate of price stability. Um, I think the transition from a lower to a higher inflation target would be a difficult one and could succeed in unanchoring inflation expectations that I interpret as reasonably well anchored around 2%. And I think that's been a tremendous advantage to monetary policy. And there are some costs of having inflation running generally at that level. So um, that to me is not, it's certainly worth considering the costs and benefits, but it's not a clear, yes, we should have a higher target. Tricky business, Janet calls it. Why? Because she's concerned that Congress would regard it as inconsistent with the Fed's mandate. Bottom line, interdependence, the Fed just does not have complete free reign to change the way it thinks about inflation. The challenge for the Fed is that the communications protocol and transparency toolkit that was honed in the wake of the financial crisis no longer seems well suited to the economic and political environments. The economic challenge is clear. Somewhat victims of their own success in anchoring inflation, the Fed wrestles with inflation that is much less persistent, stuck beneath their self-adopted 2% target. The Phillips curve has flattened. Chair Powell told Congress in July of this year that, quote, the connection between slack in the economy with a level of unemployment and inflation was very strong if you go back 50 years. But it's gotten weaker and weaker and weaker to the point where it's a faint heartbeat that you can hear just now. Changing and challenging economics are par for the course, but political challenges, of course, have reared their heads yet again. And this time, it's not just Congress. Indeed, the president berated the Fed for raising rates and criticizes them even when they cut rates. You're not lowering them enough, he says. Just this week, this week, let alone every week, he demands negative rates. And not just interest rates. Who can forget his, 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 his demands for the 50 Bs, the balance sheet? He proceeds to tell the Fed how big its balance sheet should be. We probably shouldn't be surprised that in this economic and political climate, the Fed has retreated to meeting-by-meeting -meeting policy decisions, even as it continues to reiterate its commitment to transparency. And while we don't know yet for sure how intense political pressure impacts Fed policy decisions, we suspect that there are direct and indirect effects. Keep in mind, Trump is not the first president to attack the Fed, not even close. We ask if only LBJ had Twitter. He openly threatened the Fed, he openly threatened to shut down the Fed, to fire the Fed chair, replace him with someone who would do his bidding. 
So what does McChesney Martin do? In the end, the New York Times reported, it appears Martin left the punch bowl out too long. That's just one example. Sarah and I have some ongoing, and I have to stress preliminary work, that suggests that the worse the economy is, the more likely a president is to tell the Fed to keep its foot on the gas. In this graph above, we, we collect all New York Times stories back to the 1951 accord that discuss the president, the Federal Reserve, its chair, and interest rates. And for every couple, president and Fed chair, Truman and Martin, Nixon and Burns, and so on, we plot the number of New York Times stories per month against a misery index for that period, inflation and unemployment. You can see that Trump's pro-cyclical attention is odd, but it's also a critical reminder of the Fed's precarious position at the heart of the economy and the political system, and the risks an interdependent Fed faces when it communicates about monetary policy. So just restating our own argument, economics and politics compel and constrain the, Fed, uh, constrain the Fed's communication, setting up what we call a trap uh, for today's policymakers. Political pressure to be more transparent and apparently more dovish limits their ability to fully revamp their tools, even if they admit they are suboptimal. Having said that, we've come a long way. I'll wrap up with some more of Ben Bernanke pre-crisis at his January address to the AEA in 2004. Quote, perhaps most important as public servants whose policy actions affect the lives of every citizen, central bankers have a basic responsibility to give the public full and compelling explanations of the rationales for these actions. A far cry from Montague Norman, indeed. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks, Jim, for inviting me. And uh, it's also worked out coincidentally quite well because uh, both uh, Sarah and Mark's presentation and Paul's worked as just ideal setups for what I want to talk about. So let me just summarize what I'm going to say before I get there. Um, I'm going to uh, make an, uh, an optimistic prediction. And it has three parts. The first part is to note historically that central bankers have been engaging since they came into existence in some activities that I regard as undesirable, not just from an economic standpoint, but also from a values consistency standpoint. And those are called lying, obfuscating, and making mistakes. Um, and so I'm just going to posit that those are undesirable things. That's why it's an optimistic paper because I'm going to argue that that is likely to be reduced. Those kinds of activities are likely to be reduced going forward by something new. Uh, now, of course, a lot of people have talked for a long time about how making monetary policy frameworks more systematic and, and transparent. And I will emphasize that true transparency isn't about disclosure. It's about making policy systematic and then making it clear and disclosing it. Disclosure without a systematic policy, I would say, is not transparency because there's nothing to be transparent about. 
So, uh, but I think that systematic policy that will be disclosed, true transparency, is actually uh, there for a reason. And we need to ask ourselves, as Paul was actually pointing out, why would central bankers avoid being more transparent, which I mean, by which I mean setting up a policy that's, that's systematic and communicating it both? And the answer, of course, is, like all of us, they want to avoid accountability. And so then the question is, well, third part, why am I optimistic? Why do I think that these kinds of errors, and I'll explain more in, in detail, these errors of lying, obfuscation, and just making honest mistakes, why, uh, why would those be mitigated by a systematic policy framework first? That's well-traveled ground. And then secondly, why is it that a systematic policy framework is likely to become more of a reality going forward through the intervention of natural language processing, which sounds like a joke. How can something that sounds like a computer science geek's uh, college project actually affect the decisions and the choices of monetary policymakers? And what I'm going to uh, show you is that the incentives to obfuscate, to avoid accountability, are substantially mitigated when natural language processing reveals things. And so the intuition then for my optimism is pretty simple. If I attach a lie detector to someone, they will lie less. And natural language processing, which is currently undergoing a revolution and is itself going to revolutionize all of social science that already has begun to do so, is exactly a lie detector. And so what I want to do is talk through the argument about what true transparency is, how a systematic policy framework will increase transparency, and then secondly, just review for you very quickly five different strands of the natural language processing literature that are pushing in the direction that make me optimistic. Something new for me, I don't usually give optimistic papers. Okay, so first, again, very well-trodden uh, ground. What are the advantages of transparency as I'm defining it? And here, I'm, there's a Dinser paper just came out last year and divides them, I think, very nicely into three groups. And I, we don't often hear about the first one, but I, what I like about their papers, they mention it. So everyone understands predictability comes from transparency. If, you, if you're clear about what you're going to do and what rules you're following, uh, how you're mapping from observed data in your data dependency to actions, that's going to make things more predictable. And of course, a lot of people also note that it allows you to solve credibility problems. So particularly the Kidlin-Prescott problem maybe can be solved by establishing a rule uh, if that rule is a matter that you can't easily avoid. But there's another one that they mentioned, which is self-discipline. That is, the organization itself, by sitting down and deciding what it's doing so that it can communicate it, actually is thinking more effectively and acting better uh, internally. And I want to emphasize transparency is not just disclosure, and as I'll point out in a minute, disclosure without a systematic framework, that version of transparency actually may make things worse. Uh, I particularly liked Sarah's point that part of the reason that Congress wants more disclosures so they can blame the Fed. She listed as one of two reasons. I would say it's the reason. And uh, I'll, I'll explain a little better what I have in mind there. Okay, so uh, 
for the Fed, <clears throat> there's, there's more to it than just that. There's also the fact that we have in, a, a mandate for our Congress to oversee the Fed, and they can't really oversee the Fed, as Alan Meltzer used to love to point out, if the Fed doesn't espouse clearly what it's doing. Because you ask a vague question of a Fed official, and they've run out the clock. And that's the last five Fed chairs have elevated that to an art form. So that you can't ask a well-posed question if there isn't a well-revealed framework guiding policy. Your questions then would be about whether that framework was correct and whether they had actually implemented it in their actions. But you can't ask those questions. Oversight by Congress is a joke currently because it can't be anything else. And that pretty much was Meltzer's point. Meltzer also pointed out that part of the reason for a systematic framework is not just to avoid uh, politicking or to limit uh, the independence of the Fed, those political objectives, but it's also because the Fed needs our help. The Fed actually needs its ideas to be tested and debated. And so its framework is one of many possible frameworks. And most of the Fed history, as Meltzer pointed out, the mistakes have come from one of two places, politicization or bad thinking. Bad thinking has been the, probably the dominant one. So those are all the things that we would hope to achieve by having a systematic framework, as I said, well-trodden ground. Now, let me point out that emphasize that disclosure by itself doesn't really get us there. Uh, let me point out that post-1993, now we have the FOMC minutes disclosed, and, but we don't have any required disclosure transparency about a framework, and I would say we don't have a framework. Uh, what has been the effect on the FOMC uh, statements? Well, we have natural language processing analysis of that, and what we find is that the Fed governors don't speak as often, and when they do speak, they don't say anything as meaningful as they used to. So in other words, the Fed as an institution, by imposing only a disclosure increase requirement has actually become less effective in its deliberations and less revealing because people at the, gov the, at the Board of Governors don't want to cross the chair. Interestingly, we don't find that effect on presidents, which is a very nice result for people like Charlie Plosser and Jeff Lacker who know from personal experience that the Fed presidents are an important source of independent thought at the Fed. And because they have a different governance structure that's, that they're working within, within, they can be more outspoken, at least internally within the Fed. And the research shows that. It shows that disclosure only has negative effects, but selectively. That's very interesting. We learn a lot about the Fed from these studies. Now, let me talk more generally about why to be optimistic about how natural language processing is affecting things. And what I want to do is use five examples, and I think you'll get the, the point of them. So first of all, I've already mentioned many studies. I only mentioned one, but there are several. They're all reviewed in the paper, are pointing out how the increased disclosure is leading to less information being actually created, more obfuscation. But of course, I just told you that which means that they're not getting away with it anymore. So that you could actually, Congress could start asking questions about why is it that you're not more forthcoming? So one pressure point is just 
Because we can quantify obfuscation, that's what natural language processing is capable of, we can hold people accountable for reducing the amount of information that they're disclosing. Second point. It turns out that when you look at the, the nature of language used by Fed releases, that they often have uh, big variations in complexity. So there's a wonderful thing called the Fleisch-Kincaid method for measuring how obfuscating language is. And the more obfuscating it is, that greater complexity tends to affect markets negatively. Uh, and it also tends to vary depending on the circumstances of the FOMC's meetings. Again, quite interestingly, we can objectify obfuscation. And because we can objectify it, the choice of language, how many syllables per word, how long the sentences are. If I were lying to you right now, I would use a longer sentence and I would use more multisyllabic words. <laughs> multisyllabic was close then. <laughs> so my point is, this is actually a new source of discipline. People are talking about this. How did I learn about it? From a newspaper article written about it. Very interesting. Third point. The Fed itself is creating uh, its own internal analysis. Now, the Fed issues a green book, now called the Teal Book, I guess. And what Steve Sharp and his co-authors at the board found was that if you took the text in the Teal Book, you can predict better than the, predi than the formal predictions that are reported in the Teal Book. Why? Because you don't want to embarrass yourself as the Fed by changing your predictions based on news fully. So you put sand in the gears of the actual forecast, but you don't, can't put sand in the gears of how economists talk, or at least you hadn't thought of that yet. And so what happens is how economists talk has incremental value over and above the forecast. So now, is there going to be an advantage to continuing to do that? I would say no, because we, it's already pretty embarrassing, so the Fed better make use of all the information that it, at least its own economists are saying. A fourth example. If we look, and I'm going to show you some, some data on this quickly, if we look at the, the central bank's reaction functions using natural language processing measures of the stance of monetary policy, which is completely different from these other things. Let me note, again, I had was going to mention this Bernanke quote that you mentioned, the 98% talk. And the point there, which I think uh, we agree on, is monetary policy isn't just the interest rate, and talk is about the interest rate. Monetary policy is the talk. And how can we measure that talk? Well, we can measure it with natural language processing tools. There's a company, a commercial company, that does it called Prattle. I'm going to show you their measures. I'm developing my own independent measures, too. But for now, I'm just going to talk about theirs. So what they find is that they can actually see what the Fed is reacting to. And guess what? The VIX is a very big part of the Federal Reserve's actions and consequences, the volatility in the market. And that didn't used to be the case for the ECB, but now is post-2008. So monetary policy authorities understand that they can use talk to affect market outcomes, especially in equity markets, and they're doing it a lot. And that's a lot of what monetary policy has become, for better or worse. I would say for worse. However, the point is, whichever you think, it's happening. Well, they can't claim they're not doing it anymore. Actually, there's several articles in, in finance that have shown this, uh, this effect. But the natural language processing makes it absolutely clear.
And finally, um, I'll show you some evidence that if you just read the newspaper carefully using natural language processing, it just beats the pants off of the Fed's beige book. So the Fed has this beige book where they collect this sort of qualitative information from a bunch of people in each district. It turns out if you just read the newspaper systematically, you can get much better information than that. So that, shockingly, I can predict the changes in the Fed's Prattle score six months in advance with an R squared about 50%. How do I do that? By reading the newspaper. Because the newspaper contains now casting information that's not already part of the Fed's uh, understanding. So all of these things are disciplines on line obfuscating and mistakes that the Fed, because it's coming out from natural language processing and because it's, it's public information, uh, I think are going to be very important going forward. And this stuff is very new. All of this is pretty much the last six, seven years. So I think if, if this is the first time you're hearing about this, how many of you just, I'm curious, how many of you are following this natural language processing of the Fed very closely? Few of you are. Okay, but you see my point. So part of the reason this maybe, maybe isn't, uh, hasn't been salient to you is how new it is. Okay, now I just want to show you a few things. So this is a graph for many different countries of what the Prattle scores look like for those countries. They're trying to capture hawkishness or dovishness. Um, in the future, we're going to have multidimensional policies that have to do with how surprising Fed policy is, not just how hawkish or dovish it is. Uh, we're going to improve these scores. But what it tells you is we already have a commercial supplier who's providing information about many central banks. This is looking at the cumulative Prattle score changes against the short-term interest rate. And the point of this graph is monetary policy isn't just changes in the short-term interest rate. By the way, that was true even before we hit the zero lower bound. That monetary policy is about talking and about trying to influence markets. Now, this is... Uh, when I was mentioning earlier, let's see if this thing works. I don't know if I have a ray gun here. Do I? Oh, anyway. Um, the Prattle shock is for, the, for the Fed is the, uh, the column on the far left. What you can see is the VIX reacts very strongly to a Prattle shock. So a surprise, an unpredictable change, innovation, monetary policy, tends to cause the VIX to unpredictably fall. And similarly, an unpredictable increase in the VIX, that's the graph over in the far right corner, upper corner, causes the Fed to become much more dovish. In other words, this is what it would look like if the Fed were targeting the VIX. That when the Fed says something, the market says, oh, if the Fed is loosening unpredictably, there must be a problem with the economy. So the VIX uh, responds, that is, the Fed believes there's a negative problem with the economy, and that causes the VIX to actually fall. And similarly, when the VIX rises, the Fed becomes more dovish. When you look at the, the ECB, you see that after 2008, you get those same two graphs. I'm looking at the bottom left and the top right. It, but before 2008, not at all. So monetary policy has changed. We can objectify it, and therefore, we can hold people accountable for it. This was the, the pre-2008 ECB policy, and you can see in the top right and the bottom left, the graphs look extremely different. Now, th this is just giving you that little evidence I said that if we take a reading of the news 
And that's, that's these variables here. So we have a parsimonious mapping of news from Thomson Reuters. Um, and we ask how much, if we use those, those measures of news, they have to do with the frequency of certain topics, the sentiment associated with those topics, how unusual, how newsy the word flow is. Those are, those are pretty obvious measures, very commonly used in this literature. You can see that we can explain a very large percent, depending on which we measure. We have a couple of different measures of the Prattle score here. We can explain, with those measures, a very large percentage of the variation um, in, in the future central bank policy. So um, the uh, increased value in the later period, I believe this is the later period, right, is much greater. But this, again, is something that's much more recent. So it used to be, in the early period, the incremental R-squared you got from including these moved the predictability from 16% to about 27 28%. But now it moves it from 16% to 42%. So it, with this new discretionary environment of forward guidance and balance sheet policy, the amount of monetary policy being made through words and that we can detect is uh, responding to uh, the, the economic news is much greater too. So that, that's really um, the key message I wanted to deliver. Central bankers uh, know that their thoughts and intentions are being revealed pub publicly in new ways, have less of an incentive to obfuscate, and therefore less of an incentive to avoid systematic monetary policy. So looking at their own incentives, I think that uh, they have, in fact, even positive incentives, given that we now have a way of lie detecting. They have positive incentives that they've never faced before to be more systematic. And so that's my hopeful note. Thank you for your attention. Well, it's great to be here, and I really want to start by thanking Jim Dorn and Cato for a really amazing conference. I think it's critical. These are really super important issues. They really matter to ordinary people out in the world, small business people, workers, retired people. Um, um, and I just applaud you for organizing this conference with a really remarkably diverse group of people with a lot of different range of views. Um, um, one thing that I wish we could have in these conferences, this is my second or third time coming, is uh, maybe one discussion on each panel. So I thought maybe what I'll do is just take two minutes of my time to provide a couple comments on these earlier papers, which I thought were great. Um, um, one thing was that I've heard through now three decades that I've been involved with the Fed and now retired Fed employee, um, you know, the, the looking back to Norm Montague, never apologize, never explain, and how great it is we've made progress from there. And also the quote that was mentioned of Alan Greenspan, you know, being um, an expert at mumbling incoherently. I just want to point out to you, one of the exercises I do with my students on the day when an FMC meeting happens is we do, we put the new statement into Microsoft Word, along with the old statements from six weeks before, and we put it in track changes. It takes about 20 seconds to do it, so it's great on the screen. Students really enjoy it. And I just want to flag for you how many words changed 
from the September FOMC statement to the, one, to the statement at the end of October. Okay, other than trivial words like the, word, the month September was changed to the, you know, from July. Okay, leave those out. Okay, in the first paragraph, which described incoming information since the previous meeting, the answer is two words. And those two words was, I believe, something like um, has weakened to remains weak. So it was actually the <laughs> same, same root word, but a change in the tense. Okay. And that was the only thing that was worth pointing out about information over the previous six weeks from the September meeting to the end of October. The second paragraph, which is supposed to be the rationale for the policy decision and the change in the outlook, the only significant change was actually a deletion of a couple words. The deletion was that they had said, we will monitor and we will act as appropriate. And they deleted the phrase, act as appropriate. Now, a naive person would assume, and I think we should assume, we, that the Fed will always act as appropriate. <laughs> so whether that's in the statement or out of the statement, we hope actually doesn't really matter. Uh, but let's assume, I, mean, I, I know that some of these people, we, we've heard from Vice Chair Clara this morning, these are, these are uh, devoted public servants, okay? But in terms of mumbling incoherently, in ways that Fed watchers can understand, but normal people cannot, I don't think it's fair, actually, to communicate that way because a normal person who wouldn't even notice without doing track changes wouldn't notice that those three words had gotten dropped. But the markets, of course, they took it as a strong signal. The change, I still don't know myself, the change from has weakened to remains weak. I'm not quite sure what that was signaling, frankly. But so we're still back to the mumbling incoherently and never apologize, never explain. Now, it might be, in fact, that this is partly due to political factors, except this is a recurring pattern. You can do the track changes over many, many years and, you know, one president after the next. I think it really connects maybe more to the sort of more fundamental incentives that people have been talking about all through the day today. Um, so there's still a problem, and it needs to be fixed. As I said before in my question to Paul Tucker, I personally think the right solution is for Congress to hire the GAO to do comprehensive reviews of the Fed once a year, um, not micromanage, but the GAO is a good agency that could help uh, the Fed, and that maybe would be the sort of thing that Charlie's saying would, would create some incentives for the Fed to become more systematic and transparent. But again, we shouldn't pat ourselves on the back the Fed shouldn't be patting itself on the back too much of, oh, we've really improved over the Greenspan era. Okay. The second thing I want to say is that this is the 10th anniversary, more or less, of the end of the Great Recession. But what's in my mind, especially when I look at a year ending in nine, is this is the 90th anniversary of the start of the Great Depression. And I think what we owe it to ordinary people we, the Fed, we academics, we outside analysts, we owe it to ordinary people to make sure something like that never happens again. And what really worries me here is that there were many economists, academic economists and policymakers for decades before 1929 debating about the gold standard and the shortcomings of it. But then it turned out that was a very severe constraint on the Federal Reserve. And we ended up in a Great Depression with unemployment going to 25%, with a huge departure from price stability that caused a lot of bankruptcies, debt deflation, we know all that. And we've got to make sure this doesn't happen again. 
We have to. We cannot say if, this, if we have another severe adverse shock in the next five or 10 years, oh, well, who could have known? And gee, it's too bad. And well, what could we have possibly done? This is the chance. This is why Jim and Cato, again, these kind of conferences are so critical because we got to really take this seriously here. We cannot be complacent. Now, with that, let's look at what the Fed's thinking about right now and let's try to take a hard look at it. The recent speeches, the minutes, actually are very clear that their last several discussions, Vice Chair Claire just said this this morning, they're actively considering makeup strategies. That's the thing they've now focused in on. Some other things they've ruled out, like raising the inflation target, apparently. Um, some other things like digital cash are totally off the table. Makeup strategy is the focus of their discussion. Now, I think most of you are familiar with it, but just a reminder, a makeup strategy basically says, well, make up for past shortfalls. It's like a makeup test. I don't give tests in my class, but you know, other professors do. You, know, you miss the test, okay, you can do a makeup test. Now, the question is, can we rely on this? If we have another severe adverse shock, can we rely on this? Is it, is it foolproof enough that we can reassure the public and the Congress that this is the backup plan. Now, uh, Rich, Vice Chair Claire, mentioned this this morning. The last minutes that were out just a few weeks ago say that it hinges on the private sector's understanding of the strategy and their confidence that policymakers will follow through. That raises some obvious pitfalls. Obvious pitfalls. <coughs> Expectation formation. How, do, how does the private sector form their expectations? Um, imperfect credibility, the possibility that people might discount the promises. And model uncertainty, how can we frame a multi-year strategy if we don't really understand the economy very well? We can have a very complex promise with lots of hedges and contingencies and conditional clauses, but at that point, maybe no one will understand what, what we're talking about. These are obvious pitfalls. Have these pitfalls been considered this year in the Fed Listens Initiative? Seriously? Because not as far as I can see, not a single time in a single conference, certainly not at the Chicago Fed, there was no discussion of these issues. So I hope the Fed doesn't jump in January or even next June to adopting a makeup strategy until we, as a public and as a community here, where these, there's a lot at stake, make sure that this has really been carefully thought through. And again, I applaud Jim because this is the kind of venue where this sort of consideration can happen. It's not just the policy decisions. The extent to which the Fed has very complex incentives for what it looks at and how it looks at it, <laughs> you know, just like you were referring to the Teal book, I was there in those days. I wrote the minutes. <laughs> I remember all this stuff. <laughs> Writing speeches you know, where the same words are used time after time. Um, and the same issue, I think, you know, there's incentive issues here with, with the Fed Listens initiative. Who are they listening to? Who's talking? Who are they listening to? How is that, how is, how is what they hear um, informing their decisions? Now, a major problem which should be totally crystal clear to you is that the Fed board staff model that's kind of the landmark tool that's used for analyzing monetary policy strategies was developed in the mid-1990s. 
And it's practically been unchanged since then. It's very transparent. You can see it on their website, all the equations. It's a huge model with lots of equations and lots of variables. I believe the Fed's the only central bank on the planet that hasn't changed its model in a very significant way in the last 25 years. Now, that model only has two possibilities for expectations formation. Go on the website, you'll see it's completely, and this is totally, you know, no secrets here. There's two switches. I was involved with working with Dave Schneider, Reich Schneider to develop the two switches. <laughs> One is vector autoregressions. We call it adaptive expectations. It's backward-looking. And if you do that switch, forward guidance doesn't, doesn't matter. If you, if you have adaptive expectations, the effect can talk till it's blue in the face. The model just says it doesn't make any difference. So that's option A. Option B is what the Fed calls model consistent expectations, which means that the private sector has a complete understanding of the economy, that in fact that understanding is exactly the FRBUS model itself. That's why they call it model consistent. <laughs> it's because everyone believes that the FRBUS model is the truth. And everyone makes their decisions based on that model. And not only that, but model consistent expectations means that the private sector completely believes the Fed's promises. Everything's perfectly credible. So you, here's your option A, forward guidance is utterly useless, or option B, perfect transparency and credibility. Okay, the good news is there's some super talented researchers over the last few years who've been working on this issue. It's called the forward guidance puzzle. Type it into Google, there's lots and lots of papers. Here's three of them. Two of them are published in the top economics journal, American Economic Review. Emmy Nakamura, some of you may know, she just won the, the John Bates Clark Medal for the most talented young economist under 40. She's a co-author of one of these three papers. And Jolito's a professor at MIT. Gabex is a professor at Harvard. And these are not people who are, you know, in, in some distant university in, in Southeast Asia. These are people at major U.S. institutions. And each of them said, well, we can do better in terms of trying to be more realistic about how the private sector's expectations are formed. Well, let me ask you. The Fed's Listens Initiative, the, the Chicago Fed Conference, was there a paper by any of these three people presenting their approaches on expectations formation? Unfortunately not. So I will try to show you in work I'm doing, by the way, I forgot to say this, but the, uh, this is joint, <laughs> terribly embarrassed. This is a joint work with um, Aranima Sinha, who's, who's here, where is she sitting? Um, she's a professor at Fordham. Um, um, the two of us have been trying to work here and looking at these uh, models and a few others to try to see how they matter for forward guidance and the effectiveness of makeup strategies. So let me show you some results here very quickly. Um, the paper's available so you can look at that. If you have questions, you can let us know. Okay. But what you see here is that these alternative forms of expectations change the timing of liftoff. That means even if you were doing calendar date guidance, you'd have to change the calendar date depending on which way you think the expectations are formed. In the true world, of course, none of these is right. The true world's probably a mixture of all three and some others. If you were doing threshold forward guidance, the thresholds would have to reflect this too. 
And it really matters for the path of the real economy and the path of inflation. In fact, these optimal policies don't actually look much like a makeup strategy. They have to be more aggressive than that. So the inflation rate stays high for five years, even though there's only a brief shortfall at the beginning. Okay, well then we look at imperfect credibility. And we think this is a very serious issue. Why? Because if you're doing a disinflation, you can prove you're tough. And this is where Bernanke's thing gets flipped on its head. I think if you asked that to Paul Volcker, he would have said the opposite, that the words hardly matter. If, you're, if you think inflation's too high and you want to bring it down, you can announce a target. We've seen in many countries over many episodes, it doesn't really work. You've got to act. 98% action and 2% words might be the right thing for a disinflation. But that's okay because you can tighten policy, show that you're serious, and then the inflation expectations start coming down, and that makes the job easier to actually hit the new inflation goal. The problem with a makeup strategy is it's a promise about an action that will take five or ten years in the future. How do I persuade people today that I'm, I'm, seri I'm serious about this? I really, you know, I have problems with my weight. I tell my wife, I'm going to lose weight. Well, not this week. This is Thanksgiving and Christmas. I'm not going to do it this week. <laughs> I'll do it after the new year. Okay, well, so you see how this goes. Now, look, I'm a strong believer in the central bank being systematic and transparent and accountable. I think Charlie and I and, and, and this Charlie and, and Jeff, I think we, we all actually have, you know, agree on the importance of systematic monetary policy. And I think it's appropriate for the central bank to try to explain what it's doing over the next year or two. Not just me by me, but to try to explain its strategy over the next year or two. But to try to explain a makeup plan of what it might do five or ten years in the future, it just seems very unrealistic. And if you talk to small business people, or retired people, or ordinary working people, and you say to them, oh, the Fed's got a new backup plan for the next time we have a severe recession, they're going to have a plan that involves promises five and ten years in the future, and just ask ordinary people if they're going to take it seriously. Now, what do we find in our analysis here is that if there is imperfect credibility, and we calibrate it so that at the beginning, when the, the central bank first makes the promise, it's 50-50 odds that they're going to follow through, it makes a huge difference to the effectiveness of the policy. And you can see this here with the inflation rate. The, the initial fall in inflation is much worse. And this is a simple New Keynesian model, so I don't want you to take the quantitative results too seriously, except to see here that um, this involves a lot more volatility, much less macro stability, much less price stability in the case of imperfect credibility. Well, what about model uncertainty? I mean, here we have to think of John Taylor. Actually, Ben McCallum contributed to that literature, too. Um, Hansen and Tom Sargent, uh, robust control, emphasizing that policymakers need to take seriously that we don't understand the real world very well. And we already heard this all day long today. Is the Phillips curve actually still valid? What's the Nehru? Um, um, what's the slope of the Phillips curve? We got to be realistic about it. We can't do makeup strategies in FRBUS and then conclude that, oh, that looks great. Let's do that. The advice from McCallum and John Taylor, and I think others going back much further, 
was we need to look at a whole bunch of models and really try to think outside the box about how this is going to work. Um, okay, so here's a simple illustration. We just take our simple little model. We just change one parameter. But the policymaker doesn't know that. The policymaker is still following the optimal strategy for the other parameter. The parameter we're going to change is how flat is the Phillips curve. This already came up. So the experiment here is, um, on the one hand, the central bank might know the Phillips curve is pretty flat. Then they can do a policy that works OK. But if they think the Phillips curve is still steeper, the policy doesn't work. It just doesn't work very well at all. And you can see this here in these pictures. Okay, the, the, the central bank inadvertently generates a huge boom. The output gap goes up to 10%. Inflation is, you know, 1.5% above target for eight years. Then we start to get back to the video that you guys showed with Janet Yellen because you say to, to the private sector, we're not changing our inflation target. We're just going to have a higher inflation rate that's 1.5% higher for the next eight years, but then we'll go back. And what was the words you said? Um, tricky business. Tricky business. <laughs> okay, so I think we can see here from this analysis that makeup strategies are pretty tricky business. Now, look, who, was, who said they were optimists? Was it you? you yeah. Okay, all right. But not so, anymore. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Because one, one approach here, my father's a doctor. Okay, the wor he's told me the worst thing as a doctor was to tell the patient, I'm sorry, there's nothing more we can do to help you. Okay, and, and I, uh, Mike Border and I gave you a paper last year where we showed that we didn't think QE was reliable. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but it's not reliable enough. Today I'm showing you that these makeup strategies and forward guidance are, they can work sometimes, but they're not reliable enough. We know that we're going to be stuck at the zero bound again. Is it doom? Are we, we just say to the public, sorry, there's going to be another Great Depression. There's nothing more we can do, because that's what the Fed said in the early 30s. We're out of ammunition. There's nothing we can do. And I think the answer to that is no, because our paper at the Cato conference last year was about the rationale for digital cash. And I won't go through this all again. You can look at now. Jim does a great job editing everything carefully and making sure it's very readable. So. Um, <laughs> You can go read it for yourself. I'll just skip over this. Conclusion, and this again connects to the previous discussion. Last year at this time, the managing director of the BIS said, central bank digital cash, there's a lot of unknowns. This needs to be looked at very carefully, and maybe over the next several decades, central banks would consider moving forward. And then what happened in June, was Facebook announced Libra. And now actually just today I read something that Google is uh, playing something similar. I've heard that Amazon is playing their own uh, stable coin. And now the managing director of the BIS, just this week they announced that they have a new team headed by Benoit Carré. And they're moving full speed ahead to try to help think about digital cash. I'm an advisor at the Riksbank. The Riksbank, the governor, <laughs> Last week, Stefan Ingves announced that the Riksbank has decided to move forward with eCrona. Now, it may still take a year or two to launch eCrona, but this is not pie in the sky anymore. And so I think to the extent to which we're worried about makeup strategies and we're worried about QE 
and we're worried about the effect of lower bound, um, this should be on the table. Maybe the Fed listens, we'll have some more conferences next year. Maybe Jim will help them organize it. Thank you. Um, so thanks to all of you. I have so many questions after watching uh, all of your presentations. But I, I guess the place that I wanted to start um, before I turn it over to the audience is, um, you know, Chair Powell came in with communications as a very clear focus for him. Um, you know, he ended up moving to having a press conference after every FOMC meeting. He um, has clearly tried to speak, you know, more in English or, or whatever, you know, non-economists speak. Um, and, you know, it seems like he had, he had some, some difficulties with markets early on, um, and now he's moved to be a lot more scripted. And so I guess I, I'm just curious to start, um, I'll start with you, Charles, uh, whether you feel like any of the things that he's done on communications um, have really made a, a difference, or do you think it's just kind of like tinkering around the edges? I'll just uh, point out the way I got involved with this uh, discussion on the Fleisch-Kincaid, which is about how obfuscation happens in language, was all about an article written by a reporter about Jay Powell. And the point of the article was that in 2018, when the Fed was thought it understood what was going on in the economy, the Fed's communication was very straightforward. Once it started becoming unclear whether the Fed was going to increase interest rates or whatever, all of a sudden, the flesh Kincaid score of Jay Powell explodes. So what's so interesting about that is, well, of course, Jay Powell isn't communicating. First of all, he doesn't have anything to communicate. I don't think the Fed has a framework. But to the extent that he is in the business of purposeful obfuscation, that's increased substantially in the last year when we really needed to know something. When it started becoming really interesting, what is the Fed going to do? Is it going to cut interest rates or not? It raised interest rates. Oh, now it's going to backtrack or not. That's when all of the obfuscation became objectifiable. So what's really easy is to say, what a bunch of trash talk. So Sarah, I guess just playing off that point, how much of that do you think is, uh, how much do you think that the Fed is communicating less specifically because of attacks from the president. Well, I mean, you put your finger on the, the difficulty first of separating economic constraints, all the issues that make we've been talking about that make it difficult for the Fed to have a framework or to communicate uh, from political constraints that uh, put him in a box. And our, our sense with, with the acknowledgement, we, it's hard to separate and it's hard to calibrate exactly what precise impact those types of presidential tweets might have, although some economists are, are working on that. It, it, it's difficult to avoid the conclusion pardon the double, triple negative, um, that the, the chairs in a box, right, that move uh, when they were hiking, there was enormous pressure to stop, if not to lower, and they paused. And in that box, whether regardless of what direction the Fed tries to move policy, they're still going to be hammered to keep lowering policy. And it, it just seems that the, the difficulty of the Fed doing what it, even today you'll hear, well, it's we're done raising rates, you'll hear some of that. Um, there'll be pressure to keep lowering. Uh, and unless that type of amplified bully pulpit uh, diminishes, the, all eyes are on the Fed. And the Fed knows it will be blamed. And there's a hard box to get to get at them. Yeah, well, and, and playing off the, the paper that the two of you wrote, I mean, 
you know, there, there you discussed how there's sort of these broken economic rules and broken political rules where, you know, the Fed doesn't exactly know um, what's going on with inflation right now, um, and so that makes it harder to communicate because it's not totally sure what's happening. So which do you think is sort of the, the bigger communications challenge? I'm, I'm glad you mentioned inflation because I think the way the chair and the committee have talked about inflation over really the tenure of, of, of Jay's chairmanship has been really confusing. Um, he started out this year by saying it was the challenge of our times. Uh, I think a meeting or two later, he described the shortfall in inflation, low, low inflation, as merely transitory. And you just don't tell academics, market participants, the public, something that just seems completely opposite. This is something we don't need to worry about. And just the meeting or two prior, you said this is the great challenge of our times. And they've sort of come back to the notion, sort of listening to his communications about inflation at the previous press conference and in Congress yesterday, um, you know, we're back to wondering what the kind of shortfall, persistent shortfall that we've had in inflation means. Um, I think Congress, as Sarah and I have studied it, they really focus mostly on unemployment um, and the fact that we are at a, you know, a half century low uh, across almost every demographic and at uh, sort of record lows in unemployment sort of speaks to some policy successes. But I think, as Andy made just abundantly clear, and I think uh, sort of couldn't, couldn't add anything to it, um, shortfalls in inflation and their inability to really articulate uh, the, the challenges and ways to, to deal with that, I think just sort of sow the seeds of, of some real sort of future problems. Yeah, so, so uh, you know, bringing you in, Andrew, I mean, you know, given all of these communications that the Fed is already having under its current framework, does that compound the difficulty of trying to then change what they're doing? Thanks. Um, okay, so let me just start by saying I think Jay Powell should be applauded. It's a super tough job, even in the best circumstances. <laughs> and it's a much, much more tough job now. When I talk to my students, I ask them sort of, how would you feel if your boss or the person who appointed you to your job was standing behind your desk yelling at you all the time? <laughs> it just, um, you know, so look, so I think we all admire him for his public service and his courage and stamina to do this, and Rich Clarida and the others as well, okay? So that's point number one. Number two, I, I think it was a very important step forward to start having press conferences after every meeting. The truth is they should have done that right from day one in 2011. But you know what? It's the same kind of thing as what several of you were already describing earlier and came up earlier in the day. Um, I think actually Charlie and Jeff may remember this because I think the FMC as a committee wanted Chair and we're happy to have Chair Bernanke start giving press conferences after every meeting. It was the staff who were reluctant about it. They didn't want him to give press conferences at all. <laughs> um, and, and finally, you know, relented. And, and, and so he started giving press conferences four times a year. Well, it took eight years for the Fed to finally start giving. Now, what's the difference? Well, the difference is that they said for a while, oh, well, every meeting is a live meeting. Remember this? <laughs> every, every, oh no, even if it's, there's no press conference, every meeting's a live meeting, but then you can look and see, but they never take any action at the meetings where there's no press conference. And as far as I'm concerned, that's a good thing, because if you took any unexpected action at a meeting where there was no press conference to explain it, that could cause problems, okay? So this was a step forward, and again, give him credit. 
I'm working with his colleagues and staff uh, to start, you know, it's a lot more work for the staff, that's for sure, to have a press conference every few weeks, but now they're doing it. And it's good because now literally every meeting is a live meeting. And I think giving the Fed more flexibility has been an important step forward. Um, I guess the last thing I'll say is that, again, agreeing with what Charlie said this morning and Jeff and this Charlie, I want to reiterate a recommendation that Peter Fisher made a few years ago. He, he gave a beautiful speech. It was called, What's Wrong with the Fed? And his recommendation was that every January, the Fed should adopt a strategy for the year. And it might not be an unanimous decision. It's not like their constitution, okay? Just a, a, just a benchmark plan for the year, kind of what's the strategy. It might be a tailor rule. It might be something else, okay? But this is the strategy they'll follow for the year. And, of course, there could be emergencies in which partway through the year they have to change the strategy. But that would be a, a very good start. And it would help, like Charlie said, because if they started doing that every January, the president states... And we know that there might be a new president in two years. That new president might be yelling at the Fed, too. This, is, this problem may not go away. The, the, the Fed as an institution needs to be able to say, look, we're making tough decisions. We don't all agree all the time, but here's our strategy. We're going to explain it to you as clearly as possible, and we're going to follow it through and go ahead and yell at us. You know, this is sometimes you're an employee and you're trying to do your job, even the boss is yelling behind your chair. Can I just say one thing about Another reason I like this so much, and it, I've pointed this out, is that currently when the FOMC gets together, all they have to end up with is a decision about that moment. Imagine if instead the FOMC had to actually have this discussion and agree about what their strategy would be, what their strategy statement would be in a, in a specific and, and concrete way. Um, and I think that would really improve the functioning of the FOMC if they had to have those discussions. So, yeah, I'm going to open it up to the audience. Um, Charlie up front here. Thank you. This has been a fascinating, fascinating session, discussion on a whole bunch of different dimensions. So I, make, I want to make one comment uh, to Andy, and then I have another kind of question that I'd like everybody to respond to if they can, because I'm interested in how you react. Uh, on the makeup policies, Andy, one, one thing that you didn't mention, which I think is related, is makeup strategies are symmetric. And if what you said, for example, you'd have to be overshoot inflation by one and a half percent for eight years to execute this under one set of conditions. Imagine the Fed having overshot inflation. Do you think it would actually engineer a reduction in inflation of one and a half percent for eight years, given the, the fear of either creating a recession or the fear of creating deflation, God forbid. Um, uh, I, I think as a, as a uh, I don't think, the, I think it'd be very difficult for the Fed to be symmetric in, in this strategy. It's, it's just another weakness, I think, of the makeup strategies. The other comment I want to make, and, and it's in line with some of the things that Andy said and Sarah said and, and Charlie, so I'd get your reaction, about transparency. I am a big fan of transparency. I think the Fed has made a lot of progress in many ways. Um, but I want to share an observation and get your reaction to what you think it means for transparency. Between 1975 and 1996, if you look at FOMC minutes, there were approximately, I wrote this in an editorial in the Wall Street Journal about four or five years ago, there were about 100 dissents by governors 
There were about 90 dissents by presidents over that 20-year period. So about roughly equal numbers. Between 1996 to 1995 and 2016, there were about 90 dissents by presidents, once again, two dissents by governors. There hasn't been a dissent by a governor since the great crisis, since the financial crisis began, and actually since about 1990, I mean, excuse me, 2005, I think. In any event, um, the things that I've written about, or I worry about, is that the pressure to have consensus, particularly from the Board of Governors, um, does a couple of things to transparency. It means the statements that Charlie's analyzing with these, with these uh, you know, techniques are written in a way to get as much people under the tent as you can. <coughs> From my perspective, what that has done, in part, is make those statements less content, put more, less content in the statements, more vague things, and actually are less transparent than they otherwise would have been. So I think that that's, that pressure for consensus, if you will, uh, is actually, actually anti-transparent. I'm much fonder, and, and uh, Paul and I have talked about this in the past, much more pleased with the way the MPC at the Bank of England works, because the MPC says everybody is to, supposed to vote their opinion and then justify it afterwards. As a result, you get by four decisions, seven two decisions, all, all the time. And the Fed was kind of like that in 75 to 96, but has abandoned that. And um, I think that one of the great things that Mervyn King did as a governor is he actually lost a vote a couple of times. You didn't have this language about saying, we're losing confidence in the chair or the governor. Um, that did more for the credibility of the institution right. than consensus building. I'm not against consensus when there is a consensus, but imagine <laughs> things since 2008 and the great hmm. financial crisis that you get 19 people in a room, smart yeah. people in a room, thinking about monetary policy in unusual times, and they all agree. Yeah, so, so I want to ask, so my question is, I, what do you I'm think about that? <laughs> what do you think about that in terms of how you analyze the statements and whether there has been more transparency or in fact less transparency? Let, let me give a quick answer. Uh, so first, I think that the disclosure requirements after 1993 contributed to the lack of transparency, the, the decline, as I said. But I also just want to point, there's another dimension to this problem. I think the Board of Governors is a sick institution in terms of the way the governors have been behaving, and precisely because of the lack of dissents. And if you look at what, a couple of things that they could do. So first of all, the staff all work for the chair, and the governors really don't have any independent source of information, unlike Tom and Charlie and Jeff did. They don't. Why not require them to have some staff that work just for them? Secondly, the governors are supposed to stay for 12 years. What's been the average tenure of governors? 14 months. No, no, the average, the average, right, right, 14, I meant to say. The average amount they stay is less than two years, I think, currently, the last, last several have sometimes left. So I think requiring them to come and not just look at this as 
something that they do on leave from their academic institution and prior to joining a bunch of boards to make a lot of money, some, finding some way to improve the governance of the Federal Reserve Board so that the governors actually have a meaningful voice and a mandate to stay more than a year. That's the, that's, those things have changed alongside the thing that you mentioned. There's a governance problem. The Board of Governors is a deeply sick institution. So does maybe one other person want to weigh in on how you think that affects communications, the structure of... Uh, so I'll just throw out a hypothesis, and it may or may not be true. Uh, one might wonder whether the rising polarization uh, in American politics has had an impact when the rule was still 60 votes uh, to get somebody confirmed to the Board of Governors. Now, granted, that effect should be even more dire to now that you just see 51 votes, but I could imagine an argument once senators are more willing to go after Fed nominees when they might not have been years ago, uh, that raises the incentive to find people who, I don't want to say go along to get along, but, but, but maybe more inclined to defer to the chair. Um, that's a hypothesis. Um, it, yeah. I mean, I, I would also add that part of what happened, President Plosser, over the course of those 40 years that you looked is, and, and really from the very beginning of the federal, 20 and 20, uh, roughly, um, but really over the course of the whole century of the Federal Reserve, you had a lot more centralization in the board. So I think, uh, you know, to the extent that district bank presidents feel much freer, that goes to the governance structure, uh, sort of diverse opinions. But I think for Sarah's reasons and sort of the, just the, the centralization of power in Washington has bred this kind of consensus. I should also say sort of a shout out to Ellen Mead in the back, um, who's done a lot of work on understanding the, the sort of drivers of dissent and, and really exploring what's happening with dissent. And Ellen's, I, I see her all the way in the back, so. Um, I'll, uh, yeah, I'll take more questions. Um, how much time do we have? Not <laughs> Ten minutes. Okay, so let's uh, let's maybe take two. So uh, this gentleman right here in the middle. I'm, in, I'm intrigued by your natural language analysis. But I could see if you brought that back and you examined my statements, statements I've made about something, in light of what the news was, I might say, well, that's interesting. That's absolutely what I intended. I might say, gee, that was a surprise. Or I might be deeply embarrassed by what you found. Right. How have policymakers reacted when showing your data on what they might not even be aware of is shaping, if not their decision, certainly how they talk about the decision. And that, let's just take another one, sorry. Okay, sure. Um, can I, I've got the mic, so. He's got the mic. <laughs> oh, okay, <laughs> sorry. Can I, can I just say, I didn't, I didn't seize the mic. It was, it was <laughs> to me. So I want to raise an issue that hasn't come up, which is I've started thinking about as the transmission mechanism of, of communications policy. So imagine that the central bank screws up. Have the taper tantrum in your mind. And I'm going to assert that the taper tantrum in the great scheme of things is a small thing. So the, but people on Wall Street lose, some, lose a load of money. It's a zero-sum game. So the ones that have made money stay quiet. The ones that have lost money scream very loudly. That's what gets picked up in the newspapers because in both London and here, People writing stories about monetary policy decisions, their first point of call 
used to call money market desks on the street. So big screw up, if that's an American word, um, gets... If that gets enough coverage, that's what gets picked up by congressional staffers. And then the Fed gets confronted with, you messed up. And actually, I think the Fed made the mistake of, of walking into, yeah, it was all terrible. I didn't think, you know, it was clumsy and, and poor, but I didn't think it was a big deal. The point about the, the, que the question is, how on earth can the Fed manage to speak to the American people? And by the way, makeup strategy, this isn't, a, this isn't an expression that anyone normal could understand. <laughs> Try it on your dad and mum. How can the Fed possibly communicate to regular people, the people it serves, if, if what they do is the, the, the coverage, the media coverage of what they do is filtered through Wall Street and both the written press and those morning programs, Bloomberg and CNBC? I think this is a massive problem for the Fed I, and that they need to find a way through. Do you agree? <laughs> Charlie, you want to take the first one? Well, the, and the second one was actually more directed to me, so I'll, I'll say yes uh, to Paul. But I'm more uh, hopeful because once you put some red meat out there, maybe there'll be an industry, uh, the journalistic industry, will start uh, having it, hiring people uh, more with a, a mind to uh, use it, right? So let's, let's be a little more hopeful that there'd be... If we put some more information out there, we'd get better uh, Fed uh, coverage, too. And the answer to the first question, very briefly, is one of the things you'd expect is that the Fed would start doing natural language processing. It has, um, but not enough. Um, but what's been interesting is that they're, they're not um, squashing the research. It's happening within the Fed. And I think that that's another reason to be hopeful. Um, that's, they haven't come out and said, yes, you caught me, I was obfuscating. Uh, they haven't tried to deny it either, these, these studies. But at the, I think that more hopefully, they're actually taking it more seriously. And much of this research I'm citing in the paper is coming from Fed places. So I just wanted to say that when Arunim and I were working on the title of our paper, the first draft, it was just the word makeup without a hyphen. And then at some point I realized, I realized that someone reading this, like even doing a Google search for makeup strategy, you know, he's looking for lipstick and, and, and eyeshadow. And maybe it would have been a good idea, actually. We could have gotten a lot more Google hits. Uh, but anyway, so we, we decided, oh, we got to put in the hyphen. So it's like this, this sense in which the, the communication comes down to hyphens and deleting to words or adding a word or changing tenses. There's clear, the, the Fed has made a lot of room, they've made a lot of improvement, no question. The inflation target that Charlie Plosser did, they've made a lot of, but there's still a lot more room for improvement to go. <laughs> so, yeah, I think we're out of time. So uh, thanks, everybody. Um,